Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. We promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and personal biases, and they will show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful, beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations, and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. About half the global population puts their entire social calendar on hold to watch 32 teams compete for the FIFA World Cup. <laughs> it contends only with the Olympics for the title of largest sporting event in the world. But this year's event, held in Qatar, um, which is actually not the right way to pronounce it. It's more like Qatar. Qatar. But we're not going to pronounce it that way at all in this episode. <laughs> uh, this year's event is held in Qatar and has been marked by controversy uh, from corruption in the bidding process to human rights violations against migrant workers. The event is wrought with issues drawing attention from non-sporting organizations worldwide, and it's causing an ethical dilemma for many of the world's soccer teams and fans. If you're not a soccer fan or you don't follow the out-of-game happenings in the various football associations, you might have been caught off guard by all the coverage. I know I was. I had no idea there was a bidding process for hosting the World Cup or that so much infrastructure had to be developed to support the influx of fans. Knowing now that it rivals the Olympics in viewership and attendance and facilities, yeah, that makes sense. But you also may not understand why so many people are struggling with whether or not to support the event in light of all the allegations that have surfaced. I, again, I know I had a flippant answer to that question at first. It seems very reasonable that fans and organizations would try to send a message to FIFA by not supporting the event. But the reality of social responsibility is much more complicated than it seems on the surface. Our goal with this show is always to give you the information and the tools you need to have good conversations about nuanced, nuanced, nuanced topics like this. So in this episode, we're taking a closer look at the allegations against FIFA and Qatar and asking what kind of social responsibility the organization, the teams and the fans have when ethical situations like this arise. Um, we're trying to set you up for success when you talk to the soccer fans in your life. We are not able to cover the entire story for this one, though. No, just, no. just like, listen, <laughs> there are people who have made careers on this particular event. 
Oh, yes. Um, there are entire podcasts dedicated to covering this. Uh, World Corrupt on uh, from the Crooked Media guys on the Pod Save the World feed um, is a good one that's only a few episodes long. I think it's like five episodes long that'll give you a pretty good primer on everything. Um, we're not going to get that deep in this episode. No. Just disclaimer up top. We're definitely going to um, spend more time talking about like the practicalities of applying a social responsibility mindset in a situation like this. Um, there's tons of information yeah. about the rest. Absolutely. Um, and, and, all right, fasten your seatbelts because in this week's patron only bonus content, we're talking about the big deal with beer. Yes. Being beer is a pretty big deal. It is. But, but big big beer big big beer big deal big time uh, but before we roll into the rest of this episode if you are watching on youtube hi hello we would love it if you let us know you're here drop us a comment with your thoughts on this world cup controversy or just tell us which team you're supporting and if you want to help us change the way that people have hard conversations click the subscribe smash button. smash that subscribe buttons how long have you been waiting to do that for so long the first time you wrote anything about the subscribe button into the into the show okay i'm bouncing on it oh my god well and then i'm gonna say and click the little bell icon right next to it so that you don't miss a notification um, we do post a new episode mostly every week and we cover topics that are timely and relevant to the conversations that you will probably find yourself having at the holiday dinner table this year. And we promise to maybe only do the smash thing. One like, time. Just, this is the only time. It's the most annoying. Smash. I just, 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 just one. I needed one smash in my life. That's, that's all. Respectfully okay. click um, the subscribe button. Please, please respectfully uh, click the subscribe button uh, after receiving the appropriate consent. Thank you very much. <laughs> and okay. maybe leave it a tip for its excellent service. Okay, well, now we're into it. Anyway, let's start this discussion off by talking about the two primary allegations being made against FIFA and Qatar concerning this year's event. Much like with the Olympics, the World Cup has some pretty high requirements for what a country needs in order to host. Also, like the Olympics, it can be very expensive to host with no guarantee of economic return. Countries that host the World Cup must meet minimum infrastructure requirements, including criteria for stadiums, hotels, uh, transportation options, communications, and electrical grids. Basically, they have to be a well-functioning society able to support a lot of people. These factors are so important that roughly 70% of the bidding process comes down to having this infrastructure ready to go or having plans and commitments in place to show that these criteria are going to be met. And these requirements are not anything to sneeze at either. FIFA requires a host country or countries to have 12 stadiums, each with a capacity of 40,000 to 80,000 seats, depending on which games are scheduled to be played there. Each team needs its own training site and a training site at the stadium. In 2026, FIFA will require 14 stadiums and 150 training grounds. 
And that's because they are expanding the field, uh, metaphorically, not literally, right. to more teams playing. Yes. Um, and, and these stadiums happen to attract a lot of controversy as well. FIFA requires that the stadiums be spread across the country, which frequently means that they're not near any major cities or teams that will use them after the World Cup, which basically guarantees that they're going to fall into disrepair at some point. Um, this happens with the Olympics a lot, too. But then this is despite the fact that they're located near city centers, and then they take up a lot of valuable limited real estate in those city centers, never to be used again. It's a whole situation. The cost of constructing or building the stadiums is absolutely massive. South Africa spent $1.3 billion on building and refurbishing stadiums for the 2010 World Cup. Brazil spent $3.5 billion for 2014. And then Russia spent $3.8 billion for 2018. Yeah. Again, Just these for are the stadiums. Billions. 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 On top of that. On top of that, each stadium must have a nearby airport with the requisite infrastructure to shuttle surges in passengers to regional destinations like the stadium itself, but also the hotels. Um, and since, again, this is an incredibly temporary surge in demand, it's very difficult to build something that won't later be unnecessary and therefore turn this whole thing into a waste of money. Again, in 2010, South Africa invested another $2.6 billion upgrading just their transportation infrastructure. $1.3 billion on stadiums, another $2.6 billion on transit infrastructure. Ugh. Additionally, FIFA requires 72 base camp hotels for the teams and referees, plus an additional four hotels per stadium location. Then they require another 1,760 to 8,080 hotel rooms per host city for the spectators. The variance in numbers is also is again, it's based on which game is going to be played in the city. So for the bigger games, you need more people because it's going to be a bigger crowd. Brazil couldn't meet this demand, so they brought in six cruise ships to provide 10,000 more rooms, but that wasn't cheap either. That alone, just bringing in the cruise ships, required seven billion dollars in harbor upgrades. So that's $10.5 billion from Brazil just between stadiums and harbor upgrades. Yeah. The 2018 World Cup in Russia took place at 12 venues in 11 cities, requiring Russia to build 108 new facilities, including 96 training sites for the World Cup, 27 new hotels, 26 transport facilities, and updates for 13 hospitals. Yeah understandably building these stadiums and the infrastructure for an event that's only going to happen for a few months out of one year and then likely won't come back for several decades at a minimum is not exactly what most people would call fiscally responsible. So given these requirements, the natural question is, did Qatar meet these requirements? Well, they didn't have the existing infrastructure for sure, for example, uh, at the cost of $45 billion, Qatar planned to build an entire city from scratch that would include 22 brand new hotels, turning a vacant desert into a luxury 450,000 person, 38 square mile metropolis. They also planned to build an offshore luxury resort, 
all to meet FIFA's requirements. In fact, during the bidding process itself, FIFA flagged several concerns about Qatar hosting, including the lack of the aforementioned rather extensive infrastructure requirements, as well as the fact that Qatar is, well, to quote Wikipedia, mostly flat and barren desert covered with loose sand and gravel. That is a direct quote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as one would expect from a desert, it's hot there, like really hot. The World Cup is typically held in summer, in the summer, um, through June and July. The average temperature in Qatar from 1962 1962 to 2013 was 95 and 97 degrees respectively for those months, with the average high temperature hanging out around a balmy 107 degrees. You do not want to know what the record highs for you do you do you do -hmm. do want to know okay well coming straight from the pits of hell try 120 and 122 degrees that's like it's a dry heat it's it's not the heat that'll get you it's the humidity (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, clearly in layman's terms, it's just too dang hot to play soccer in weather like that. The concerns about the temperature were actually enough that Qatar's bid was listed as high risk. And yet, it still won the decision. Qatar had 14 votes to the United States 8 at the end of that decision process. Uh, So how did that even happen? Well, quite simply, money. Mm. Way back in... 2020, yeah, 2020, so far back, the Department of Justice issued an indictment which included accusations of both Russia and Qatar bribing FIFA officials to secure rights to host the World Cup. The indictments actually charged some media executives and sports marketing company with several crimes in connection with bribes to secure television and marketing rights for international soccer tournaments. <coughs> it's the World Cup. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, these indictments were part of a case spanning several years that had already led to convictions of several soccer officials and executives and led to depositions from former FIFA leadership. The scheme was pretty straightforward. Officials in charge of casting the votes for the hosting country were paid to cast their vote for specific countries. The complicated parts were how they got their money and a lot of that involved fraud, you know. As it does, uh, three as it does. as it does, three South American officials were paid to vote for Qatar. A soccer official from Trinidad and Tobago was paid five million dollars through several shell companies to vote for Russia. A Guatemalan official who pleaded guilty in 2016 to money laundering and fraud charges was also promised a million dollars to vote for Russia. And this really is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the corruption around FIFA. Uh, So-called FIFA gate. And just side note, I am so sick and tired of everything being gate. Like, we got to find something something else to identify things as a scandal. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm just, everything's a gate these days. It means nothing's a gate. (laughs) 
Anyway, FIFA Gate has led to the Department of Justice accusing at least 45 people and several sports companies of 92 crimes and accepting more than, than $200 million in bribes. At least 26 of those people have pleaded guilty. So much money. I'll vote for Russia for Trade Amendment. Yeah, listen, I need... Somebody, somebody hit me up. I can be paid to vote. Like my vote doesn't matter. Nobody's asking me where we should hold the World Cup, but if they wanted to. As we said earlier, Qatar did not have the infrastructure to support the World Cup, but rather they promised that they would have everything that FIFA required before the World Cup started. Some estimates have Qatar spending over $200 billion to prepare for the World Cup though Qatari officials say it's more like six and a half billion. Either way, a vast sum of money has gone into construction and into everything that is needed to support the World Cup. And massive building projects require massive workforces. In Qatar, that meant a huge influx of migrant workers, about 30,000 of them just to build the stadiums, most from countries like Bangladesh and India and Nepal and the Philippines. Attention to the plight of migrant workers in Qatar picked up significantly in February 2021, when news outlets like The Guardian began reporting that 6,500 migrant workers had died in Qatar since the country won the World Cup bid. Now that figure is based on numbers provided by the embassies representing the workers' countries in Qatar. But it's challenged by the government officials who say that it's misleading because not all deaths recorded were of people working on World Cup-related projects and could represent those who had worked in Qatar for several years and may have died of old age or other natural causes. I put air quotes around natural. It's not in the script, but I did it anyway because I am all, I'm like, this is sus. You're already not buying it. I'm already not buying it. Um, the government has acknowledged that 37 deaths occurred among World Cup laborers, but asserts that only three of them were work-related. I mean, it sounds sus. It really does. It sounds that what it, you have major infrastructure and 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 building projects around your country, and only three deaths have occurred. Right. Right. <laughs> mm. It's like. I mean, I don't expect it to be 6,500, but I also don't expect it to just be three. Right. I, yeah. This. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and we should just point out that, like, there doesn't have to be some intentional cover up for this to be suspicious. Yeah. Just the idea that, like, nobody really knows that in and of itself is bad. Right. You don't have to be intentionally misleading people to be negligent in a situation like this. In 2016, Amnesty International accused Qatari companies of using forced labor. Their report said that workers are forced to live in squalid accommodations. They were forced to pay huge recruitment fees and had their wages withheld and their passports confiscated so that they could not leave. Um, They also accused FIFA of failing almost completely to stop the human rights abuses. In response, the government of Qatar said that the welfare of the workers was a top priority and insisted that it was committed to a systematic reform of its labor laws. They introduced measures to protect foreign laborers from working in very hot weather, to limit their working hours, and to improve the conditions of workers' camps. 
By 2017, FIFA also seemed satisfied that measures had been taken to protect workers, including a wage protection plan to ensure that employers pay their staff on time. However, (laughs) in a 2021 report, campaign group Human Rights Watch said foreign workers were still suffering from, quote, punitive and illegal wage deductions and faced, quote, months of unpaid wages for long hours of grueling work. Stories abound of workers who are sleeping 11 to a room. Um, They're suffering from bed bug bites. They're scrounging to find work that will pay enough for them to maintain their visas, pay their recruiters, and still send money home. A lot of these laborers actually don't make enough at the construction job that they're working to survive. So they're having to find second jobs to to survive because the reason they came was to be able to provide for their families back home, a lot of them. And if they're if you're spending every cent that you make just to get by where you are, that it's a whole waste of it's just a waste right. for you. Yeah. Um however, in Qatar, it is illegal for a lot of these people to have a secondary job. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's complicated. It's super duper complicated and very messy. Um there are some absolutely heart-wrenching stories out there that you can find. They Again, they abound. They're plentiful, especially right now. Um, we didn't include a lot of them just because um, we wanted to talk brass tacks of a situation like this. But I would encourage you, if you're interested in the topic, New York Times did some good ones. I believe The Atlantic um, had a good one that they just put out not too long ago. So some really important stories, I think, to read. Um, yeah, again, those are those are some pretty heavy allegations, and there's no question that the toll on the real individual people in those situations has been very, very great. So how much responsibility does FIFA as an organization carry when it comes to setting ethical standards? And how much responsibility do the teams and the fans have to hold the organization accountable for holding those standards? To answer that question, we have to look at a concept called social responsibility. Social responsibility is an ethical theory, which holds that individuals are accountable for fulfilling their civic duty and that the actions of an individual must benefit the whole of society. In many applications of the theory, there's also a strong benefit or emphasis on the balance between economic growth and the welfare of society and the environment. That concept has been expanded more recently to organizations and companies to make the case that companies must act in a way that benefits society, not just the bottom line. The concept of social responsibility has become increasingly important to investors, employees and consumers, especially millennials and Gen Z, who seek out organizations that contribute to the welfare of society and the environment. 41% of millennial investors put a significant amount of effort into understanding a company's social responsibility practices, CSR practices, before they invest in a company. And Gen Z will likely exceed that once they reach peak investing power. This isn't even my final form. Makes they go um, super saiyan. Yeah. I, 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 that's something personally that I know I am representative of as a millennial. Uh when I was talking to my financial advisor, um, <laughs> which makes it sound like I have way more money than I do, um, 
But one of the things, one of the first things I asked him was, uh, can I avoid investing in certain companies that I didn't like their impact on the environment or I didn't like the way that they handled certain uh, social, societal, ethical, uh, moral issues? Um, and luckily he was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. We can do that, which is cool. Good, good fiduciary. Yeah. Um, Here's a fireside breakdowns pro tip. Go find yourself a fiduciary if you don't have one. Have many conversations. Be brutally honest with them and get your stuff in order. You're welcome. Okay, back to back to the World Cup. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that, I, fiduciary responsibility. I work for a retirement <laughs> plan management company. <laughs> but yeah, as a as a millennial, I am I am caught up in that forty one percent. So whether or not a company appears to be on the right side of a social issue is a bigger deal now than it has ever been before, clearly. According to a report compiled by Harvard Business School, 70% of Americans polled believe that it is important for companies to work to make the world a better place, while just 37% believe that it's most important for a company to make money for shareholders. I hope the companies are listening. <laughs> Around three quarters of respondents say that they are motivated to make a purchase from or invest in companies that are committed to making the world a better place. I am, again, wrapped up in this. I always look for uh, uh, companies or I try to look for, you know, who does a company donate campaign money to? Uh, whose campaigns are they mm -hmm. donating to? Um, are they ethically sourcing their materials? Are they – a lot of companies now will plant a tree for every dollar you spend there or some of them will plant two trees mm -hmm. uh, for every dollar that you spend there. Um, some will – like Article is a furniture company that I'm looking at buying stuff from because of the way that they handle uh, sourcing their materials and, and they're just a – they present themselves as an ethical company. Um, and that was one of the – primary motivators for me seeking out their stuff first. They do not sponsor the show, but they could if they wanted. I mean, I would not be mad about it. 90% uh, of employees who believe that their companies have a strong sense of purpose say that they are more inspired, motivated, loyal, and willing to recommend their employer to others in the social network, in their social network, excuse me. And maybe most importantly to this conversation, a quarter of consumers and investors say that they have a zero-tolerance policy toward companies that embrace questionable ethics practices. Hmm. 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 Does bribery, does bribery I mean, and money laundering count? I don't know. I don't know. When you put these kinds of numbers together, it paints a picture of a consumer base that's very interested in where companies stand ethically. But no, these statistics only reflect American respondents. And we do know that soccer is a global sport, right? Something like 86 million Americans are projected to watch at least some of the World Cup this year. But that's only about 2% of the viewing population. So... Clearly, American ethical standards aren't really going to make it or break it for people. But this sentiment is growing globally, and many more international organizations are going to have to account for this mindset as they move forward. A 2020 study that included 8,000 respondents from eight countries, which is 
a pretty representative yeah. sample. It's a good size. Um, revealed that 94% of respondents believed that it is important for the companies they engage with to have a strong purpose. It also showed that when consumers believe a brand has a strong purpose, they are four times more likely to purchase from the company and six times more likely to protect the company in the event of a misstep or public criticism. Which, like, that's a big fucking deal. Um, there was a company that I used to work for that uh, we called this particular group of audience members of customers, we called them the wolf pack um, because if someone were to criticize the company on social media at all, they would get absolutely devoured in the comments. Um, that's a really important part of a company's PR strategy. So if you're out there, FIFA, you maybe want to just take that into consideration. Um, but clearly the pressure here was not enough to make action essential. FIFA's president essentially told the world to get over it and focus on the football in a letter to the teams that was published then widely. Uh, so if organizations like FIFA aren't going to take a stand on social issues, what is an ethical consumer or even a player to do? Is boycotting the right answer? I think that we all kind of have this idealistic perception that if we just put our collective foot down, vote with our dollar or our click, and demand change, that an organization will have no choice but to comply. That is a, um, is a pretty fundamentally American mindset. Boycotts have been a driver of social change here for generations, right? It was actually one of the drivers of the Revolutionary War. It is quintessentially American to think this. But in reality, it is not that simple. <laughs> in cases where the issue is ideological or even philanthropic, take Chick-fil-A's corporate donation situation from several years ago as an example, there may be no unintended effects from changing corporate behavior. But in cases where workers or children or national economies are involved, things get very complicated very, very quickly. Speaking of Chick-fil-A, just... Uh... Just want to put it out there for the record that I have never purchased that delicious, delicious fried chicken for myself because of their donation policies. And uh, I've had it. I've had it as part of like a work function, and it's uh -huh. really good. It's really good. I feel it's like really they good. changed their donation policy though. I, I don't I'm not, I'm not, I'm not they did. That I... We're going to have to look it up, but um, I just want everybody to know I suffer <laughs> from my stances. <laughs> the worst part is, the worst, the worst part is I used to work with a woman, lovely woman, um, uh, who's a lesbian, and she... <laughs> She would come in like every day with a giant bag of Chick-fil-A. Oh my gosh, She'd just yeah. be like, I don't even care. It's so good. <laughs> She's like, why are you boycotting it? I'm like, ah, personal war. This is my struggle. <laughs> there, there's actually a lot to be unpacked by uh, about how we, uh, ethical consumerism. There's a, there's a lot to be unpacked in that conversation. Yeah. I 
I gave up shopping at Walmart years and years and years ago because of, of their treatment of employees. I tried to give up shopping at Walmart, but that meant having to shop on Amazon. And I really yeah, don't I know, know which right? is worse. Yeah. Because of, because of where I live. In the Mid-South, you basically can shop at Walmart or you can shop at 16 different stores to try to get everything you could have gotten at Walmart, thus polluting the environment and spending much more gas, or you can give all your money to Jeff Bezos. Yep. Yep. You mean you don't want to drive all the way across town to go to the Hy-Vee or something, but even then you couldn't get the stuff you can get at Walmart. Yep. Anyway, back to the World Cup. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I gave myself this name without looking it up, but I'm... Listen, disclaimer... I am trying not to make myself sound terrible here, but I'm going to fail. Jewer Ilum. Yeah? 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 Yeah. All right. Okay. Jewer Ilum, a forced labor coordinator for the Worker Rights Consortium, said that the sudden withdrawal of a company or initiative can actually cause more harm than activists realize especially in foreign-initiated boycotts. Rob Harrison, director of the nonprofit Ethical Consumer, says that boycotts are not a favorite tool among those campaigning for workers' rights. Instead, he says, his organization aims to support worker-led organizations and help highlight unfair working practices to put pressure on organizations to change their practices altogether. Unionization? Something like that? Yeah. Or unionization if you are a scientist. You can see this mod. <laughs> that is such a nerdy joke. Yeah. I'm so sorry. They're spelled exactly the same. They are. Um, <laughs> One has much greater implications, I think, than the other. In this particular, in this particular context, yeah. <clears throat> you can see that this push to organize the workers for change in a company modeled in organizations like Amnesty International, which is campaigning for Qatar and FIFA to take action to compensate the migrant workers in Qatar for their mistreatment, hardship, and labor. Okay, so if we're not just going to straight boycott, should we put pressure on the sponsors or on the teams? Um, Well, before we can answer that question, we have to consider the greater economic picture of the World Cup. There are seven global FIFA partners, like Adidas and Coca-Cola and Visa. There are six more World Cup sponsors, including McDonald's and Budweiser and Crypto.com. And none of the sponsors have even considered removing their support for the event, despite the controversy. There's a really good reason for that. Adidas expects to earn about 400 million euros extra this year because of this event. It would take a very significant amount of pressure to outweigh that revenue. To make something complicated a lot more complicated, we also have to acknowledge the virtual impossibility of 100% ethical consumerism. We were just highlighting that a few seconds ago with Robin's own struggles in Springfield, 
Um, each of those major sponsors plays a huge role in our everyday lives, from the products we know we buy from them directly to the other organizations and channels and companies and individuals they support to the other companies that own significant stakes in them. Disentangling the specific actions one would need to take in order to effectively boycott any of these companies is overwhelming at best. It's like saying that you only want to buy American-made products. There's no such thing. Even if it says made in the USA, chances are all of its constituent parts were made in China. Yeah, it's... It get it's it's real messy, guys. It's real messy. I know I know people out there like to boycott their Starbucks, but it's real messy. And then there's the team, and then, and then there's the money that each team earns. Okay, so teams get paid a baseline of ten thousand dollars per player per day for participation, including an allotted preparation period. In 2018. Each team that got eliminated at the group stage, that is the first stage, so the people who played the least, earned a minimum of $8 million in U.S. dollars. Prize money for the winning team was $38 million. And national teams have control over what happens to that money and how much players earn. Oh, and then also FIFA pays about $2,800 per day to each individual club that releases a player to the national team to compete in the World Cup. So like, there's a lot of money moving around, a lot. And that really limits incentives for players and for teams to speak out, especially when the organization threatens to penalize them for taking a stand, like it did for the teams who wanted to wear a One Love armband to um, demonstrate their support for LGBTQ rights in a country that does not recognize them at all, and in which homosexuality is actually criminal. Um, there were a lot of teams and players that wanted to uh, kind of do their their visible protest without necessarily causing disruption to the game, and they were told that they would be penalized if they did that. So yeah. there's a lot on the line. I just a lot on the line. I would, however, like to point out to the people in our audience who may be possessed of the opinion that life does not hand out participation trophies, that the losing teams got an $8 million participation trophy for the World Cup. Life might not hand them up, but FIFA does. Each each individual player. So I'm just saying, participation trophies are a real thing, apparently. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So... (laughs) So what can we do? What can we actually do? This is super scientific. We have done many studies on this. Uh, Luckily, we have a broad swath of fireside breakdowns, uh, political, social, Mm -hmm. economic, and ethical advisors on tap to help us answer these questions. Um, That's new since the last episode, everybody. We we won the lottery. Yeah, that's why this episode came out a day late. It's because we just had to compile all of our advisors. Or two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So here's your answer. Ready? Do what feels right to you. If you don't feel comfortable watching this year's cup, don't. And feel free to respectfully and without being sanctimonious, explain why. 
look for the organizations that are helping the cause and support them financially and publicly. Keep an eye out for ethical issues in advance of the next cup and work to raise awareness of them proactively. The reality of situations like this is that there are so many ways to take action and affect change for the better, but there are also so few ways to force organizations like FIFA or countries like Qatar to feel the impact of what they've done. It would take a highly organized, global, cooperative, and sustained effort to try to impact their pocketbooks. And we're not saying that's impossible. People have gotten fed up before. But it is more possible for each of us to affect change on a much more individual level by supporting workers' rights organizations, by supporting aid organizations, and by opening up dialogue with local and national soccer associations to, you know, try to influence them before the money starts flowing. Yeah. Um, I don't personally believe that uh, change comes from the bottom up or the top down like solely. Mm -hmm. It's, it's always going to require effort from both sides. It's going to require the people who are affected most by it to cry out for change and have allies that will help them. And also for the people in charge to understand those calls for change and to act on them. Um, so most of the people listening to this, I would hazard to say all of the people listening to this are part of the bottom up crowd. So that's what you do. And that's, I mean, that's what we do with this podcast. We're at the bottom with everybody else <laughs> yep. trying to affect social change in a sustainable and responsible and, and inclusive way. Not quite sure what our uh, record time is, but we're somewhere around 40, 40 ish minutes right now. Yeah. Okay. So just a couple minutes for personal discussion, right? Yeah. Do you feel like, as a soccer fan, do you feel like FIFA has some responsibility here? Mm. I mean, yes, FIFA does have a responsibility here. They need to be aware of the countries where they choose to uh, to have the World Cup occur. They need to be aware of how those countries treat the, um, shall we say, least among us, if we're going to use a, a biblical mm -hmm. phrase, even if it's not exactly a flattering one for right. the people in that group. Um, and, and they need to make, I think, strong, concerted efforts uh, to, to use their global stage, their platform. They have a responsibility to use that um, to advocate for things like justice and justice, justice and equality and equity and concepts that I think are broadly and universally desirable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, it gets really, really complicated. Um, obviously, the time to take action was in 2010, and the decision was to not give the bid to. Uh, but we know that that was a corrupt process in the first place. Um, so yeah, there's responsibility, but that action has to be taken during that first initial discovery phase. Once you start getting into this process where countries are investing tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, possibly 
to be able to host this event, the, those dollars aren't going into a vacuum. They're paying yeah. local businesses or paying local or migrant workers. They're building economies. They're changing economies. And so once you start to push and pull on those factors, you start to involve a lot more people and you potentially make life harder for the people at the bottom, the people doing the work, yeah. without any actual impact on the organization at the top. So, Yeah. I think the ethics after the decision was made um, are much harder than the ethics before the decision is made. Because after the decision is made, yeah, you've got people who are dependent for their livelihoods on this event. There are people right now in Qatar who are making money, hopefully making money off of this event. It's the most that they are going to make in their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And it is going to provide stability for their families for who knows how long. But but it's going to provide a better outcome for their families than would otherwise have been possible. So in that way, it's it is a blessing to many many people. That is an educated guess, by the way. I don't have yeah. data to support that. But um, there are many many people that are suffering. That are at least at least three people that died because of this. Probably realistically, many many more than that. Um, and many who are living, but in a worse position than they were uh, before the the World Cup came. So, yeah, the best time to make an ethical decision would have been way back in 2010. Yeah. And moving forward, every time they host the decision-making process. They did end up changing some of their rules for deciding who could host in 2012 after this process and in part because of the controversy around Qatar winning. So Yeah, so that's good and that's that's the kind of responsibility that you want to see an organization take. Um hey, we messed up. Let's change things so that we don't keep messing up more in the future. So hopefully Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully it continues that <laughs> we'll, way. We'll see. Fingers crossed. I guess I didn't realize how far out these decisions were made. I mean, I, well, I know it with the Olympics, but not being all that well versed in the soccer community, I yeah, I had no clue. Well, this is that's uh, it makes sense to me, but only because uh, I had a, an insider view on infrastructure and how long the projects take from beginning to end, and like in the U.S., uh, ten years from the planning stage to the final build is average for say like highways and stuff like that so if you're going to build out an entire yeah. you know city you need 10 12 14 years to get it done yeah no that's that's an excellent point yeah um and again like so we, we talked to oh go for it oh i was just gonna i was just gonna move on to um if FIFA has some responsibility, do you then feel like the teams have responsibility here? Yeah. I mean, teams, yes and no. Again, they're kind of caught in that middle layer. If you think about how many of the teams that are competing at the World Cup come from countries that um, are not considered the most 
economically stable or well-to-do countries in the world, it feels like a lot to ask players to risk potentially their family's economic stability uh, for a cause like this. Um, and again, we have to acknowledge that the American or the Western worldview on some of these issues is not the same worldview that a lot of the globe has. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's different and we have to acknowledge that. And so when we hold other people to our ethical standards and our expectations, things get pretty messy. And so, I mean, I think in a, the case of egregious, you know, human rights violations and, and things like that, if you want to hold your own national team accountable, you should hold your own national team accountable in whatever way feels appropriate to you, save violence, of course. Um, yeah. But judging teams from other countries that you are not intimately acquainted with their values, thought processes, or um, well-being is probably not the way to go on this one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I agree. Uh, the... the the teams, their responsibility is uh, one, a lot of them, you know, they're not decision makers to begin with. They're players. Yeah. Um, and not, and the coaches sometimes aren't really decision makers. Um, they're at the mercy of the owners of the team. And so, you know, the teams, I, I think they have some responsibility to, if they can, make their thoughts known if they can do so safely and in a way that doesn't endanger themselves not every team not every player for every team has that luxury mm -hmm. some of them even if they are dissatisfied they're they're on a national team for a nation that would punish them for speaking out mm -hmm. so uh, we have to acknowledge that not everything is as not everybody enjoys the freedoms that we do either in america uh, and um, freedom of speech being foremost among them and uh so yeah I, I think there is responsibility but it is it's very limited um for what can be reasonable and expected yeah. of them yeah the the balance of ethical consumerism and social responsibility and personal ethics is one that is really really hard to get right especially because when we are passionate about something especially something that we think is right or wrong we want everyone else to be passionate with us. It's human nature. Yeah. It is built into our psychology. Um, but I think it comes down to what we were talking about earlier and just taking as much individual responsibility for your participation as you can. If you are uncomfortable with what's happening and you choose to continue to financially support the organization, then that's, that's a dissonance that you have to wrestle with. Um, and it's not anybody else's job to do that for you, but it's also not your job to do that for anyone else. If you'd like to financially support an organization, why not Fireside Breakdowns? You can do so at firesidebreakdowns.com. That's right, our website. It has all sorts of great resources for you there. You can find our show notes. You can find our shows. You can find links to our socials. You can find links to our Patreon where you can legitimately financially support us. We will use your money to buy a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. Almost almost guaranteed. If it's not a cup of coffee, maybe a bottle of whiskey. 
Um, mm-hmm. And there's some cool perks that come with being a patron yes. that we fulfill at least 90% of the time. That's true. So there's only two of us, guys. There's only two. We're trying. Um, but uh, yeah, that is that is that is it. That's the bump. That's it. Go to firesidebreakdowns.com. Oh, also, leave us a review. Mm-hmm. Do it. I'm not going to beg you anymore. Just telling you. Just do, do it. it. Just do it. If you're listening in Spotify, just click the little thing that lets you leave five stars. Yeah. Done. Perfect. Love it. Helps us so much. Helps other people find us. Boom. Boom. Okay, that's the bump. That's the whole bump. Nothing but the bump. Good news. <laughs> oh, shit, I didn't find any good news. That's right. I got some good news. Okay. Okay, I forgot what it was. It's gone. It's gone. The good news, I had it. I was like, ah, oh, this will make great good news. It's gone. You know what? I remembered it. The good news is back. Um, so, uh, the f- <laughs> hold on a second. Let me pull up. Um, I'm not going to discuss how much it sounds like you were on cocaine in the last minute of this conversation. (laughs) From the sniffs to the bumps to the forgetting. I've been fighting off a sneeze for like probably 45 minutes now. (laughs) Like I just, it's just hovering there. It's just hovering. And I can't, I can't. Um, So I think... I think this is good news. This is highly subjective, but it is definitely good news. Um, U.S. soccer, we uh, scrubbed an emblem from the Iranian flag for the World Cup, a very important emblem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, That is the emblem of the Islamic Republic. So the Iranian flag did not always include this symbol on it that that the red central symbol on the flag um and by removing that symbol uh people are the the u.s soccer federation is uh saying it is being accused of Mm -hmm. i suppose um of supporting protesters in iran ahead of the world cup um, the the World Cup game between the United States and Iran that's happening uh, tomorrow as we record this. Hopefully today uh, is the day that it comes out. Um, so the government of Iran reacted, cause uh, accused America of removing the name of God from its national flag. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of complicated history about the government of Iran going into this. Um, but yeah, not everybody will put it this way supports having that symbol on the flag. And many Iranians were very pleased to not see it on the flag. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to be familiar with moving on. Um, mm-hmm. but the U, uh, the USSF, that would be the United States Soccer Federation, um, they said uh, in a statement Sunday morning that it they had decided to forego the official flag on social media to show support for the women in Iran fighting for basic human rights. So it's not just an accusation. USSF was like, yeah, that's exactly what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. Go be mad about Die mad about it. Get mad at it. Yeah. 
Um, so then, yeah, the U.S. men's team displayed uh, a banner with the squads matches in the group stage, and the they also used the Iranian flag without the uh, the symbol of the uh, uh, Islamic Republic on it. So again, yeah, I'm kind of poking them in the eye. I love it. It's it's just. Look up the whole story because uh, I we don't have time to cover it all, oh, but it is so good. it is incredible, and it made me very happy to see it, um, and it made some people I know also very happy to see it, um, and we are probably going to have to cover the ongoing protests, uh, yeah. in in Iran soon, um, but yeah. Okay, I think that's everything. I think that's everything that we have to say about that. That's what I got to say about that. We're gonna go ahead and peace out for the this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, hopefully, you can catch or did catch the U.S. Uh, Iran game that happened one o'clock Eastern time on Tuesday, <laughs> November thirtieth. I will be watching with bated breath uh, from from my desk <laughs> and for for the most part um as much of it as i can watch which will not be much unfortunately um, but i'm very much looking forward to the outcome and we will talk to you hopefully in one week until that time please take care of each other mm-hmm.